A few notes before we begin. This podcast includes conversations about the harms of colonization, including discussions of the residential school system, the ongoing discovery of unmarked gravesites, the African slave trade, and slavery. It also includes conversations about the history and current day impacts of racism on the health of Black and Indigenous communities and individuals. Please, listen with care and care for yourself while listening. Additionally, please note that we're eager to showcase the experience, expertise, and wisdom of hosts. But also note and remember that their views and ideas may not always align with or reflect the views, policies, and governance of the Ontario AIDS Network. Welcome to Bundles of Medicine, a bold and brave learning tool that was created by Dr. Roberta Timothy and Janare Yurksa in collaboration with the Ontario AIDS Network. For context, what follows is primarily a resource for individuals and teams working and volunteering within Ontario's community-based HIV sector. It includes several broadcast discussions and a workbook to guide individuals and groups through a process of reflection and learning. To be clear, Bundles of Medicine is a response to our sector's need to create space, support, and deepen the work that aid service organizations across Ontario are doing to address and navigate anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism. The following episode, broadly speaking, will dive into historical manifestations on the present. And so what I just said was, hello, all my relations. Mishikibanesik uh, is my Anishinaabe name. And uh, my English name is Janare uh, Yerksa. I belong to the Sturgeon clan. And my home community is Kuchiching First Nation. Thank you, Jenna Ray. I'll introduce myself right now. I'm an African transnational Indigenous woman, Black feminist, womanist of West African ancestry. My language, tribe, land, name, and family have been taken away from me through over 400 years of colonization, anti-Black racism, misogynoir, and other forms of intersectional violence. I'm surviving African enslavement through processes of forced migration. My peoples were incarcerated in the Caribbean, Latin America, and North America. And as such, I'm intrinsically linked to Indigenous peoples and their struggles for self-determination, reparations, and justice. As a result of the structural violence and what I call health violence, racism, and brutality, I come from a working class background and I'm always considered a daughter of immigrants. I'm a mother of two living and resisting with a visual disability in Turtle Island, Canada. I'm an educator, researcher, community organizer, and therapist with over 25 years of intersectional anti-oppression, anti-colonial experience. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, Roberta, uh, to talk about anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racisms and how to bring out this work and do this work uh, in the HIV sector for folks that are supporting our communities. I'm excited um, to talk to you also, and, and you know, in solidarity, because our, our peoples um, have been in solidarity in the past and currently are, and we need to 
to strengthen that solidarity again. So I think it's it's an amazing time to have this conversation with you. I'm really um, honored to talk with you. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing too that um, I'd like to acknowledge is all of the Black and Indigenous people who are living with HIV and AIDS who have been our teachers. Yes. Um, you know, like for myself, uh, I am coming into the conversation not as an expert um, in the HIV or AIDS sector, but as somebody much like yourself who has spent a lot of time uh, thinking about, reflecting on the way our communities have been impacted by settler colonialism and uh, thinking about decolonization work and how important this work is and how it transcends all different kinds of contexts. So that's the spirit that I know we're coming here today to gather. Definitely. I join you. I join you in that spirit and really, you know, talking about um, I've been involved in HIV community for many years, 15 years old, actually, when um, Black Cap just started. And I remember going to a picnic back in the days and, you know, then I was in Black Cap board. But more importantly, um, the impact of anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism and HIV um, is such a critical uh, under, uh, piece to understand when we're thinking about uh, how do we decolonize our health processes and how do we actually dismantle systems of colonization? So it's a, it's a, even though this is a conversation we're starting with, it, 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 it comes from such a bigger context. So, you know, when we're talking about HIV and AIDS, um, one of the things that gets highlighted a lot is the overrepresentation of HIV and AIDS in our communities, right. both in the Black and Indigenous communities. Right. And so, you know, I, I guess that's where we could start is how do we, how do we make sense of that? Yeah, you know? Yeah. I mm -hmm. think that's an important place to start, particularly because the numbers are quite often talked about, but the context not necessarily explained. And I think that has to do with, you know, white supremacy and it has to do with um, a, a colonized, um, intentional colonized um, system that wants to create particular stories that actually do not have context um, in terms of really the impact of anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, and HIV prevalence. Like there's a there's a deep connection uh, within those uh, you know those areas. So I think it's an important place to start. Yeah, like we do know that Indigenous people are disproportionately overrepresented with HIV infection rates across Ontario. Like there's different reports that highlight that, right? And one of the things that I really think is important is what are the attributions of that? And so when you talk about white supremacy, I agree that racism and colonialism have everything to do with the overrepresentation. And the attributions are key because how we define an issue and situate the conversations determine how we go about solutions, right? Totally. Yeah. And so I guess, like, I think for far too long, there's been these problem-saturated narratives about Indigenous and Black communities that become compounded when we, when we bring in the context of HIV and AIDS. So for instance, like, when you're Black, and Indigenous and living with HIV and AIDS, these intersections of oppression become more heightened. And it's not because we're Black or Indigenous why we're at greater risk for the virus. 100%. And yet sometimes I think in the sector that's how it gets presented, right? Like 
the risk is because we're standing on the shoulders of very heavy histories that continue to manifest. And so 100%. Yeah, yeah, like, it's so problematic um, for any of us to think that if we're going to understand properly um, how to support Indigenous and Black folks living with HIV and AIDS and make sense of the overrepresentation in our communities, that we don't need to understand the history of the country and how it continues to play out in the present, right? Totally. Yeah. So. And it's a critical start. If we don't start here, how do we actually talk about um, moving forward, right? And and actually uh, dismantling systems that actually create um, oppression for our communities. So I think it's it's a really critical place to start. Yeah. So when we're talking about racisms, like anti-Indigenous, anti-Black racisms, uh, which is really, and you already mentioned it, white supremacy, it's so important that we don't divorce any of that from settler colonialism. And uh, because I think about like my community, the Indigenous community, and there's uh, many diverse nations within our communities, right? Uh, Settler colonialism has always structured the relationship between Indigenous peoples Canada and its citizens. And so there's like this oppressive relationship and an imbalance of power that plays out politically, economically, socially, culturally. And then like that starts to play out within our institutions, right? right? Like the health sector. I like the the point that you also said in terms of um, the heterogeneousness of our communities. I mean, a part of what, you know, anti-Indigenous racism and anti-Black racism does is actually creates this notion of homogeneousness. And not in homogeneousness as though we don't have things that we share within our communities, but homogeneousness as there's only one type of Black or Indigenous person, which then plays into usually negative stereotypes and, and, uh, you know, have uh, in terms of even what the, the the person you know what a person living with HIV looks like is in terms of our community and even even does, you know, doesn't talk about the responsibility or accountability of structural violence that actually leads to to higher rates and higher prevalence in our community. So it's the heterogeneousness. We come from different you know, genders, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, disabilities, immigration status for some of us, at least within the Black community, even refugee status. And um, we, you know, we come with our own stories and our own experiences. Yes, we have a connection through, um, you know, shared experiences of anti-Black racism and colonization or anti-Indigenous um, racism. We're talking about Indigenous communities, but it really is important to, to, uh, to outline we are heterogeneous. We are full and creative peoples. And that's an important, I think, conversation also that we will have later on when we talk about resistance within our communities, right? Yes, and challenging that whole like monolithic narrative that we're seen through, like seen through this white gaze, right? right? As a blanket statement of Black or Indigenous people. Right. Yeah. And usually in a negative way, right? Or usually in a way that doesn't represent us fully, put it that mm-hmm. way. I think uh, in terms of the overrepresentation of African, Black, and Indigenous peoples living with HIV, it is directly related to historical and current day impact of colonization, white supremacy, anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism, slash violence. Like we're talking about violence, we're talking about anti-Black, and anti-Indigenous racism, and also even the history of scientific racism, you know, and 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 how that impacts the notion of science and, and chronic health. It's a really critical um, thing to at least to say, right, and to explore, to understand how uh, scientifically uh, racism was uh, 
used or, or scientific racism was used to actually create these otherings of our communities, right? So there's a whole history with that. I think HIV is one example of many where African and Indigenous people's health intentionally has been neglected. This is intentionally, like this is not um, something that is not, not intentional. There are many factors that contribute to high HIV prevalence in our communities, including little resources and financial security in our lives due to direct theft of resources, including land and people theft, enslavement, residential schools, etc., housing and food and employment apartheid, racial profiling and surveillance, criminalization among others, all based on structural violence and its policies that have confined the lives and health of African and Indigenous people's health, including HIV. African, Black, and Indigenous people are constantly living in a state of crisis and experience differential treatment and limited access to supports and resources, unlike the white majority who are in power in the Canadian state. Moreover, stigma of Indigenous and African communities, which is heightened for those living with HIV, are based on over 500 years old colonial systems that create negative narratives of the quote-unquote unclean or the quote-unquote morally suspect or quote-unquote promiscuous African, Black, and Indigenous person. The narrative was used to mm -hmm. dehumanize and create legitimacy for the brutal takeover through genocide, cultural, physical, and mental of Indigenous, African, Indigenous, Turtle Island peoples to create Canada, or the myth of Canada that directly others and tries to make less than African, Black, and Indigenous peoples while prioritizing white people as better, more powerful, and more just. This racial or racist dichotomy is the foundation of HIV violence and overrepresentation of African, Black, and Indigenous peoples living with HIV. So it just didn't happen just like that. There's a structural violence and an intentional piece. Hello, that we need to talk about, right? Yes, like, oh my gosh, there's so much you just said there um, that really gets me thinking about a lot of different things. So when you're talking about the racism, the stereotypes, and how these are really, really deeply rooted um, in what we now call Canada. Yeah. Um, it really highlights how understanding the necessity of racism, like the structural aspects of racism, the necessity of racism, why it's so needed, right? The dehumanization right. of yeah indigenous and black peoples is needed in a settler colonial state. And so when we're talking about the overrepresentation of HIV and AIDS um, within our communities, it's so important to dive deeper and not just focus on the statistics, right? Hello. Because yep. when you just focus on the statistics and this high overrepresentation and wanting to make sure folks get tested, know their status, things like that, which are important. Definitely. Um, we definitely need to go deeper than that as well, right? Yeah. And we need to understand that we need to position racism as being married to settler colonialism. Yeah. Like if we are going to talk about HIV and AIDS in relation to Indigenous and Black communities, we need to talk about racisms. We need to talk about white supremacy. Yeah. We need to talk about settler colonialism. And more importantly, as folks working in this sector, we need to begin to see our part in these structures and what our relationship is to settler colonialism what is the decolonization work that we have to do right and, and that we're doing that we've been doing like but there's also that right the notion that 
we haven't been doing the work. We have always been doing the work. I just want to add, I think what you said was just like, yes, and 100%. I just want to add something to the stats, because I think, you know, there's a lot of conversations about data justice and, 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 and things such as this. And I think with, with, we need to have a little quick conversation about HIV data and actually who actually has control and who actually collects the data. You know, because there's a, there's there is that history about um, in our communities that we have not necessarily controlled the data in terms of even uh, you know talking about HIV and Indigenous and, and African communities and Black communities, so our, our ACB communities. So I think it's about yes, we need data, but we also need to be uh, you know empowered in terms of the data we're collecting, what data we're collecting, and then analysis of the data because you can have data and and then you know the results are are not. Uh, working for our community or the quote unquote interventions or, you know, things that are happening have nothing to do with our community. And I think, yes, we need to, you know, have HIV uh, data, but we also need to be collecting it by our communities for our communities. And that makes a big difference um, in terms of even monies and resources that are not necessarily being given to our communities to do, to do research and to do, uh, uh, you know, supports within our communities. So that's just something mm-hmm. I wanted to add also in terms of stats. Yeah, and presenting the data, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've had a lot of um, real violence within data, within uh, HIV data, within our communities. You know, folks have done um, things that are, have been damaging for our communities. So we need to, to really empower um, Black and Indigenous folks. And also, you know, um, data collection should be headed by uh, Black and Indigenous folks who are living with HIV. You know, mm-hmm. we, we talk about... Um, you know, meaningful, um, you know, meaningful engagement, but yet it, it, it's not necessarily happening uh, in the way that I, that I, that I think should happen. And I think if we look at, look at it from a decolonizing lens, uh, there's many different ways that we can actually do that type of work. And I know I've engaged in that work and you've engaged that work in different ways. So yeah, it's something to, to also put in there, I think, or to mm-hmm. think about. Yeah, so when you talk about that as well, like the, the need um, to have folks that are living with HIV and AIDS from our communities, doing the research, presenting the data, interpreting the data, all of that, um, in the absence of that, like from a theoretical frame for, framework looking at settler colonialism, like yeah. that is the contribution of erasure, right? Yeah, and so like really simply put, when we're thinking about uh, settler colonialism, like what is it, right? It has to do with the erasure of, of Indigenous peoples, of Black peoples. It has to do with the erasure um, where we are not present or, yeah, or not leading the, the initiatives, right? Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's, why it, that's why the connection back to you know, uh, colonization is critical. Like it's, it's, we can't connect it back to, you know, different governments in power and, and Canada. you know, it's a liberal government, it's a conservative, like that doesn't, I'm not saying there's not, there's not agendas that, you know, certain governments have particular, you know, uh, I don't know, places to, you know, in terms of our conversations, but I think it's really more important to look at how does settler colonization and how does uh, colonization in general, uh, try to disempower Indigenous peoples. And also also understanding that African peoples, Black peoples, African Caribbean peoples are Indigenous peoples. And we know we've had this discussion a little bit, but, you know, that yes, there's we have. <laughs> global Indigenous peoples of the, uh, you know, it's, it's a really, 
what colonization has done is also dichotomized what indigeneity is, right? And in a, it, it, we are global people um, in the world. You know, there's, there's, I can't remember the population now. I'm sorry, I don't have the stats. But, you know, in terms of global indigenous peoples and uh, the impact of colonization is a, is a critical piece, right? That we, we've all been impacted differently um, by that. Yes. And, and that's why um, doing this work, like that's what I'm really excited about with um, being able to do this work with you and being asked to do this work. I think it's great that, um, you know, the, that there's space being created, right? Because when we're talking about settler colonialism, um, the erasure of the connection of stealing nations of people from Africa, right? 100%. To build wealth and develop stolen lands that like indigenous people here, like my ancestors were dispossessed from in North America, right? right. To create these settler colonies and build wealth, right? Yep. Um, that is something that we need to think about more deeply and have these conversations together because it's definitely connected under this umbrella of white supremacy and settler colonialism. And I mean, it's such a critical piece, you know, in terms of African peoples, um, you know, I, I'm a survivor of enslavement, but my brothers and sisters who stayed in the continent also experienced colonization differently, but you know, they, they lost me, I lost them. And that split, that impasse, that transgenerational trauma that still exists within our regions, and I'm talking about the African continent and the diaspora, is impacted by, you know, when we look at um, HIV prevalence, and we look at, you know, how resources um, have been taken from our, our various countries that we, and our main countries that we, are, we come from, but also that the transgenerational trauma, like the, what, the, the pain that we've had to deal with in terms of family separation, not only uh, 400 years, but also currently when you look at systems of, you know, CAS and other systems that have inter, uh, children's aid society that interfere and, and again, incarcerate our children. So this, this, and it happens within the indigenous communities also, there's a history, there's an impact, right, of this um, settler colonization of this, what I would say, global colonization or global colonial violence. And that impact is hitting us today when we look at HIV prevalence, when we look at HIV violence, what I would call HIV violence within our communities. So it's, it's to be able to actually um, look at how we continue to heal within our communities, we have to go back, right, which is what we're doing in this episode, is to, to look at the, the historical and, and context of, of colonial violence, which I think is going to be moving through through the the series that we're talking about, but it's sometimes something that people want to really go through quickly. Okay, can they stop talking now? How many times do they say white supremacy? Well, hello. Um, <laughs> really, <laughs> right? It's like, right. It, yeah. like every day for African Indigenous peoples, it impacts our lives every minute of the day. Like, I don't think people realize what that means. Uh, yeah, right? like how to navigate it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like we need to learn how to navigate it to survive. And part of that navigation yeah. is debriefing about it, learning about it, yeah. wh which is what brought us here today to be able to have this conversation. Totally. Right? Totally. And so when I think about, um, you know, back when I used to work in the HIV sector, um, one of the things that was one of my goals is I always wanted um you know, society to care about yeah. 
learning about understanding HIV, yep. you know, wanting, wanting rather than um, most of society disconnecting themselves from HIV, you know? And yep. so when I think about actually also being within the sector and being an Anishinaabe woman, you know, it, it's so important that we also don't disconnect from history, from settler colonialism, and just think that that doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, I'm not black. I'm not indigenous. Yeah. That doesn't have anything to do with me. And, and also as an educator, um, who's been doing this work a long time, that's always one of my goals in the classroom is to help folks understand that regardless of who you are, uh, colonialism impacts you. And it sets you up to think and behave a certain way, especially when you have not critically reflected on it, right? Totally. And, and so it, but that's the other part is that it doesn't have to be that way, right? It, it doesn't yeah. have to be that way, even though it's historical and structural, like, and so I think we need to ask ourselves some questions repeatedly and sit with it. And we need to ask, like, how have we internalized uh, power imbalances yeah. that exist as being normal and unconsciously replicate colonial oppressive di- dynamics? Because if we don't sit and reflect on that, that becomes our default. That is our default. That's what colonization has set us up to do, right? Totally. And so when we ask ourselves those questions, like that approach will create you know, a basic starting point to understand how we're all impacted by the structure. So many folks talk about reconciliation, but how many of us have begun the difficult and challenging work to interrogate our own personal relationship with colonialism to create space for decolonization, right? That's the question. I mean, that's the question, right? And what's your accountability? What's your accountability? What's your responsibility based on your social location? We all have different accountabilities and responsibilities. What is yours? And how can you, how can you change? How can you make a difference to not be, um, you know, a part of a system that exploits and hurts? And, and right. when are you going to make that? What, when do you make that choice? And some people that choice is not made. We, we have to constantly um, live, you know, through the, the pain of the reality of, of colonization and, and also HIV stigma, which I, you know, just, just bringing up as a connection to anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism and uh, white supremacy, HIV stigma within, within um, not only our communities, but within communities um, in general. I think that's also connected to that, that same, you know, um, uh, negative connotations that come with indigeneity and Blackness or Africanness. And, and we have to challenge that. You know, it's something we have to fight on a daily basis. And I think the HIV sector has also, you know, there are, I mean, I've worked in the HIV sector for a while and even saying I had, I had a problem saying HIV sector. And I, and I say that because uh, people who are living with HIV are people who are living with chronic health, you know, like anything else, like cancer, like, you know, and yet that the mm-hmm. HIV stigma Good has point. separated, right, folks into, mm-hmm. into to the HIV sector where, where many folks are making a lot of money and are usually not Black and Indigenous people who are living and surviving with HIV. I'm just putting that out there. And so I always, you know, I believe that when we look at the, in the health, health sector in general, we need to also like dismantle that notion of 
you know, there's one sector and that there's no, nobody's else response. Nobody's responsible for folks who are living with HIV. You know what I mean? Like I always, mm-hmm. in my work, always said, I used to work in shelters and the shelter movement, the anti-violence movement. And I'm like, if you're not going to deal with folks who are living with HIV, um, then you're not actually not doing the work. It's not about saying, oh, there's people in the HIV sector. You know, this is, this is, this is how we, 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 um, we segregate and we kind of create these little, um, I don't know, these little places where people are then put into, I can't serve them because I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm only serving a certain population. And I think we need to challenge that also, right? When we, when we dismantle the notions of our system that are, are, that are pretty problematic in terms of how people look and think about HIV, particularly in Black and Indigenous communities. So we have to challenge the healthcare system that has also done a lot of harm to our community members. Um, That's the impact of continued colonial, you know, um, colonial violence, I, I think. Um, I don't, I don't know. We're, we're going all over. We have so many things to say. Um, Roberta, you got me, you got me thinking about one thing. Yeah. So like, as we move forward with our podcasts here, um, we are going to be talking about language. Yes. And so like when you're talking about the, the language around HIV sector, right. Um, what would what would we say it instead? Like, yeah, it's a good you know, question. And, and maybe those are things that like we need to think about collectively. Right. I and, don't, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't think like saying mm-hmm. HIV sector is a problem. I think when people are, um, you know, tunnel visioning people, if that's a word, I'm making a word, tunnel, putting people in one sector and, and, and saying that I'm not going to actually give you services because, you know, you need to get your services in HIV sector. So you need to get your counseling, you need to get okay. your extra pieces, right? And then the HIV sector, which is a very white male sector, um, is not necessarily dealing with our communities. We don't have the resources, we don't have the, the interventions. You know, um, this conversation that we're having is, is, is um, something that does not happen on a daily basis in the HIV sector, right? So I think it's not that we don't have an HIV sector, but that within the health sector, the other health sectors, that HIV is also prioritized like other chronic health issues are, right? Mm. So when you, there's cancer, special cancer care, but there's also cancer is not stigmatized, right? The same way as HIV is. So mm-hmm. um, we really need to, I think, challenge the notion of what the HIV sector means for our communities. Is it something that is it is it is is it helping us to have have the have that? I mean, this is a question. Like, is there is it helping us to say you know that we have an HIV sector when you have a- HIV researchers who are making a lot of bucks? I'm sorry, but yet the, the folks in our communities are not getting resources during COVID nineteen. There's so many people in our communities who were suffering, um, and you know there are some organizations that obviously supported, but we are underfunded, right? So the HIV sector didn't step up and say, hey, let's let's help the black and indigenous communities that were disproportionately being impacted by COVID-19, anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism. So we have to broaden our look, um, you know, and our, our conversation about the, the, the impact, I think, of health violence, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm still, we're still working this out, so. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, no, it, do, it does know? make sense. And um, the other thing, like I think about, um, you know, when I, when I, when I was working in the sector is it, you know, I, I stayed working in that sector for, for quite a long time because I, my team that I worked with, they were predominant, they were all indigenous folks. 
Right. And uh, many of them were from the two spirit community. And I found that, you know, when my, my old boss, um, you know, Laverne Monette, she used to talk about how, how it's indigenous women and two spirit people that are leading the work in our communities around HIV. And just to add on what she used to say is that um, what, how I've come to see it is actually really leading uh, decolonization work that the rest of our communities, including the indigenous communities need to get on board with, right. you know, and, and so it makes me think about um, how like our communities, yes, we struggle with these impacts of um settler colonialism, white supremacy, the racisms, and yet we continue to carve out these liberating spaces um, to breathe, you know, and to continue to grow. And yeah, and I've definitely found that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the resistance, right? I mean, when I went to, you know, when I started to hang out with uh, Black Cap when I was 15 years old, like, and I had, you know, been, I grew up in a Pan-African activist home and a, a Black feminist home. And so I was constantly going to different places and spaces resisting against anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, you know, colonization, um, heterosexism, everything. So when I came into the space and there was this brilliant Black queer community, um, you know, who were, um, had, were dealing with loss of losses in terms of HIV, you know, during that time. And they were fiercely working, you know, like 24 seven, 365, which um, doing work to, at that point, um, to try to, you know, um, support people who were dying with HIV. And um, just the, the, the way I, I saw, you know, particularly black queer men and, and black lesbian women actually, um, in the community, just stepping up and doing the work at the time was just, it was, it was something that I'll never, ever forget, right? And I, and I was, I was a part of that. And I think that that lands you to know that, like, we've been resisting, this is not something that, you know, um, resisting anti-Black racism in general, in the HIV sector, in the community in general, um, you know, homophobia, heterosexism, misogyny for, for Black women, um, so yeah, we, you know, Absolutely. I think, I think that's why we were, that's why we're still uh, doing this work because it, the work, this work is about decolonization. This work is about dismantling anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism and other intersectional violence. You know, like, yeah. And, and so when we're looking at this history, um, one of the things that uh, we've reflected on and talked about has been around like looking at the, the policies that have historically and more recently have um, that are critical, right. To understanding HIV and indigenous and black communities. And so again, like going back to the resistance, the strength that has always been there within, um, within our communities and uh, the folks carrying out the work and doing the work um, that are living with HIV and AIDS. Um, You know, I I think about when uh, settlers first got to North America even and how um, folks that were two-spirit were purposefully targeted 
you know, to disempower our communities, our governance structures, and how they had to go underground, you know, and, and that was very purposeful because the way our communities related, our kinship relations, our governance structures were not what um, settlers were used to. And so, yes, like targeting two-spirit people and targeting Indigenous women, all of that disempowerment to create and normalize like heteronormativity on these lands, right? And, And so when we're talking about policy, I know a lot of Canadians are thinking about Indian residential schools, and I really have a hard time calling them schools because um you know the way we think about schools today however wrong we might be like schools do not need graveyards right yeah um but going back to the the kinship the gendered relations like and the disruption and the targeting um you know the indian act i think about my grandparents going to these places and not being able to talk to their siblings for like 12 years you're in these places you have your brothers and sisters going and you cannot talk to them because you're a different gender and if you do you're going to get beaten right and so you just see this complete disruption um around relationships and then yet when i worked in the sector i see these like brilliant and strong and loving and critical uh, two-spirit people creating space, you know, and safety. Yeah. And, and so that's what I mean when I say that the rest of our communities, like in society need to need, need to take, like need to follow here. That's, that's the decolonization work that we need in our communities to get well. And when you, you know, when you, when you say like, you know, that your grandparents, you know, have gone through residential schools and, and, you know, places and spaces where people spent 12 years of their life. Um, and I, I mean, and it's not schools. I mean, that's not a school. I, I would say that's, that's a right. prison, right? I, I don't know. That's, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you, you, you talk so clearly and articulately about that experience, but the reality of these policies have created transgenerational or, or um, intergenerational trauma, right? We're, we're holding those experiences. And I say, um, even though we have a different location, um, I can relate to the taking away and the incarceration of, of who you are. You know, the language that I speak is, is not my own. It's not my, my, my West African tongue. You know, it's, it's been cut in that way. And, and I think when we look at residential schools um, here, you know, there is a, a global connection to African peoples even, right? In terms of um, not only South Africa, but Kenya also, and the boarding school system, the, the British boarding school system um, that existed, you know, in the, that still exists in the, in the continent and diaspora, which is, you know, I mean, even in terms of the uh, brutality of shaving our hair, which mm. by the way, there's still a connection even today. And that's a, another story, but in terms of not having, being able, our hair not to, not, not to be able to grow. And we still do that in some places and spaces in the continent and diaspora when we go to school. And there's a history of, you know, that brutality of trying to, um, you know, 
uh, un, unindigenate us, right? Or, you know, to take us apart in that way. And I just, I, I, we're, we have this conversation, but I think if we were really, if we really to feel what that is, we wouldn't be able to even talk right now, right? Like the, the language that I talk in, the, the words mm-hmm. that I talk in are not my own, you know? Um, That's right. My family speaks English, Creole, um, and Spanish, right? And, and that comes from a history of brutality, a history where you go to, um, you know, uh, the brutal enslavement or slavery in Canada, which people don't want to talk about all the time, you know, in, in 1608, um, the Code Noir, which refers to the group of laws which governed the condition of slavery and conduct of the enslaved, it was established by King Louis XIV, um, you know, of France in 1685. And this law basically uh, abolished our religions, our traditional religions and spiritualities. So when you're talking about like, you know, um, how, um, how colonization through residential schools, you know, created the, 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 the total disempowerment and brutality uh, with Indigenous communities. I mean, this is something that has, was legislated, you know, even before Canada was considered Canada, you know, the That's notion right. of Canada is a problem itself, but that, you know, it, it, it came through these, these other types of laws and uh, Canadian law abolished slavery in August 1st, 1984. This is the British Empire. Uh, yet we know that we still see the difficulties today, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the difficult immigration and uh, refugee processes, which continues today for African Black folks. Um, you know, the LGBTIQ dis- uh, decriminalization 1969, homosexuality removal of the DSM in 1973, Bill C-389, which was introduced in the late 2010 to amend the Canadian Human Rights Act to protect the rights of transgender or transsexual citizens. And I won't even go into the Canadian Human Rights Act, which is a whole other conversation in terms of how human rights did not include Indigenous peoples, right? Like in 1944 and the the Breton and all of these other pieces, we were not included. We were not considered the atrocities that have happened to us were not considered when they're actually creating human rights laws. So I think it's it's an important piece. Um, They talk about women's, um, you know, the women's rights movement in the Canadian context, Mm. you know, 1929, the challenge Senate appointments and 1947, Asian and South Asian women were eligible to vote. 1960, you know, First Nation women living on reserves ever again to write the right to vote. But again, living on reserves, like we have to unpack those pieces, you know, in terms and of again, yeah, like going back to the Indian yeah. Act, right? Yep. Like when you talk about Indigenous women and the Indian Act and how Indigenous women would lose their status. Yes. Um, I mean, and there's a lot to unpack there around status. Um, And the misconceptions that Canadians have around uh, being a status Indian. But I think, you know, even when you think about the Constitution Act, right, which is the supreme law of Canada and the division of powers under federal and provincial jurisdictions. So status Indians and the healthcare system. Uh, create issues in terms of which government pays for which services, right? right? Status Indians and reserves are federal jurisdiction and healthcare falls under the province. And we all know that, um, I mean, Cindy Blackstock has brought so much to light, right? With the funding, the yeah. lack of funding, the inequitable funding uh, for folks on reserve and yeah and i mean and and the kind of it's such it's such an important piece because 
again, that how people see indigenous peoples on reserve is, you know, that the kind of the media portrayal and the, the extra portrayal of, you know, what what that is or the, the kind of negative connotations, that all is intentional piece, right? Mm-hmm. That actually impacts. We're talking about, again, bringing it back to, you know, HIV prevalence. Like, this is not, you know, people are not, the, the, even the fight when they, they're talking about the, you know, the fight for, for water. And, and I keep on hearing this and I, I know we've talked about this before, the fight for water in indigenous communities. And it's like, uh, when you turn on your sink right now, I'm talking about the majority of folks and, you know, the majority of people in this country in terms of numbers are white folks, uh, you get a glass of water. So you're drinking water on a daily basis. So when indigenous communities, people who are the first peoples of these lands, are not drinking water. And if I hear another statistic about it, I think I'm gonna scream, I think I told you this, but what is going to be done? Because this is actually intentionally being done, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have water in your sink. So when somebody doesn't have water in their sink and particularly the, the, the indigenous folks of this nation, what do you do? What is your accountability and responsibility, right? Because this is another example of health violence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so these, the, it, that doesn't come from just, why are you drinking water? Who has water? It comes from policies, right? It comes from the whole system of creating, um, you know, the reserve Indian, uh, the, you know, wh- who gets money from this place, who gets money from that place, yet the problem is not being dealt with. So we're looking at, again, the systemic violence, right? That is intentional that's happening. And I say that example because it's used a lot, the, the water example, yet it's, again, because it's such a systemic piece, right? The structure is actually made to actually harm and to disadvantage Indigenous peoples in this land. And that's why something that that could be such a simple fix is not a simple fix when you don't want to fix it, if that makes sense. Right. <laughs> you, you know what I'm trying yeah, to say? Like, yeah, like <laughs> you were talking, like... you were talking earlier, like earlier on about um, the stereotypes and around promiscuity and, yeah. and these types of things. And so, I'm thinking about, you know, how do we make things relatable, right? And so folks, like folks know about the TRC, they know about Indian residential schools. They also know about um, missing and murdered Indigenous women, right? And I think what they don't know is like how far back it goes. Like, so again, with policy, right? So you look at today, um, Indigenous women, of course, are overrepresented when it comes to living with HIV and AIDS. Right. And yet, you know, well, why is that, right? Well, I already talked about Indian residential schools, the the disruption of gender relations, um, the Indian Act. And the loss of status. And when Indigenous women lost their status, they could no longer live in their communities. So they're disconnected from their land, disconnected from their families, from that support. And um, yeah, but but it goes even further back than that, right? So for instance, when when land was being um, advertised to settlers to move here, like, especially in Canada, like we know there's all kinds of different terrain yeah. that is not easy. Right. Um, but land was being ad- advertised like free land. Right. Come and get your plot of land. And the other thing that was advertised, too, 
was they would have like images of, of, of women, indigenous women. So it's like free land access to women, indigenous women. So there, because folks couldn't bring their wives. Right. So there's this historical, um, historical image, monolithic colonial image of indigenous women, this violence um, that plays out today, you know, and that, and that, that's, I mean, that is, I, I connect with you with that in terms of, you know, African women and the gendered experience of, you know, um, and prevalence of HIV in terms of, uh, you know, African black women living with HIV and what, how does that happen? Well, again, in terms of enslavement, I mean, black women, African women, um, you know, who, who were taken away or who left in the continent, because remember the continent was also colonized. Um, this is, you know, sexual violence was, uh, is a colonial tool and not having, um, you know, how you actually um, brutalize a uh, group of people is through their women, right? In terms of, and actually, you know, having, um, having, uh, if we look at statistics of even kind of health violence for black women, even now, you know, black women have had the most drastic increase in rates of high blood pressure. Um, we, we are still, uh, you know, dealing with um, uh, making less than, than men. We still are dealing with uh, different types of, you know, sexism or massage de wah. So the history, there's a, there's a history of colonization, which is, you know, kind of not only dehumanizing um, the the woman or black women particularly, but also utilizing black women for um, you know um, kind of for colonization in that way, right? So all of those pieces, the land, language, spiritual, and cultural theft, forced migration, displacement of millions of people, um, all of those have to do with not only gendered violence, but but also gendered violence, which also has to do with our men. So. The fact that our men are, you know, being incarcerated like all over the place in terms of, you know, great numbers, all of these different things have led to, to health violence. And these are, these are, there's so many policies, I think that people think, well, hmm, like how does this Im- impact folks? You know, the cannabis, the recent cannabis um, bill, you know, most folks who are, have been incarcerated for cannabis use, and there's folks who are living with HIV or use cannabis for different, um, you know, um, healthcare reasons. Um, are they've been criminalized right and amnesty hasn't happened so there's so much different ways i think that we can we can look at this there's an impact um colonization has an impact in our communities that definitely are connected to you know hiv um prevalence but more importantly hiv violence i think when we say prevalence that word which bothers me by the way i know we're going to talk about language (laughs) but you know it leaves out the violence of of the actual impact of anti-Black racism. We have 41% of our children and youth are in care or are apprehended by the Toronto Children's Aid Society or Black. You know, like these are like, I'm, I, I'm not a, a stat. I like, you know, I believe in stats, but I also, you know, sometimes think that stats can be used in a particular way. But um, it's so important to understand that among ethnic communities, Black women have had the most most drastic rates, even in diabetes and, you know, other, other disorders. And it, I say that because uh, Black folks and Indigenous folks living with HIV are not only just living with HIV, right? They're living with anti-Black racism. They're living with disability. They're living with refugee issues. They're living with uh, being undocumented. They're living with incarceration. Um, you know, they're li- living with being pr- uh, racially profiled. Like it's the it's a constant, constant impact, right? So I think it's it's really important to understand. I wanna I wanna um, 
I don't know, I, I want to talk about like, there's so many policies, and I think we'll go through more of those at one point, but I want to talk about like, our collaboration, you know, as mm. Indigenous and African peoples, why is it important? Like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we, why are we doing this? Why is it important for African and, and um, Indigenous communities to be in solidarity and to collaboratively do this work? I think that's a, a good place also to, to have a conversation. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I'm really excited to be doing this work collaboratively with you, my sister. Yeah, um, it's you. Imp- Yeah, like it's so important to do this work collaboratively around anti-Black, anti-Indigenous racisms. And, you know, I said earlier, like to understand how nations of people were stolen and how nations of people have been displaced uh, to create settler colonial nations. And um, for us to look at how anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism in Canada is inextricably linked, right? And so if it's linked, then there are endless possibilities like to stand in solidarity and to support uh, liberation, right? Um, And we need to stand in solidarity against white supremacy and dehumanization with the goals of our liberation and well-being. And I've been reflecting a lot on, you know, like what has gotten in the way for me. Right. And, and so again, like here, it's going back to um, reflecting and asking questions like to further that decolonization process. Right. And, you know, um, as an Anishinaabe woman, like it wasn't until I was 20 years old where I started to learn, um, about, about oppression, even though I lived it my whole life, like it was so normal that I didn't know there were things that could relate to my whole experience, right? These concepts. And so I've been trying to learn about, my history and pick up things and you know like even just like introducing myself in my language I'm taking language courses to to learn my language and that's where my focus has been and yet you know um like the last few summers um with the pandemic with what happened uh with George Floyd, yep. with Ahmaud Aubrey, Christian Cooper, Deontay you know, uh, Brianna Taylor, like all, all of like seeing, um, seeing black people being killed by police, um, being killed by white men. It was things that like I could relate to because I have friends that are being removed from their lands by the RCMP out in yeah. BC. Um, or like, and it just like, it really stopped me to think like, how do I do this work in solidarity? How do I build these connections? And, um, because that's, what's needed. Right. And so that's why I'm really happy to be here talking with you, conversing with you, learning from you. Um, being validated by you. Yeah. Sis, sis, don't mm. make me cry up in this podcast. You know. 
seriously now oh my gosh i i think i mean just what you said first of all touches me um yeah i i just i need a second <laughs> um hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think, I think, um, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, this is the reality, right? This is what we're living. And I think um, uh, as an African person who uh, grew up here, who was born here, and um, yeah, you know, sometimes tears have to happen because that's where we're at. We're at. And I also, also, also believe that we need to reclaim our emotionality because we're always told not to cry or not safe to cry. So I am, a I am a town crier. I will let you know I am a town crier. Um, I was born here in this, this beautiful indigenous land and you know, grew up in a very uh, anti-Black racist space. You know, every, every day we were sick by dogs and really treated horribly. And my activism with my mom in terms of, you know, constantly going out and protesting against, you know, um, all, all types of injustice in the, in the anti-violence movement. And, you know, uh, I remember going to Indigenous uh, Women's March, you know, as a kid, I'm going to, you know, uh, anti-apartheid march. I was very heavily involved in anti-apartheid and knowing the connection between Canada and South Africa, the South, the South African region, um, was such a critical piece for my healing, right? And the mm -hmm. solidarity is everything because it's something that um, we're not supposed to do, right? So it is critical for African Indigenous peoples to work together in solidarity. We also have a history of doing so that our history books have omitted. Movements against European colonization, abolition of slavery, civil rights, American Canadian Indian movements, and many more link African Black Indigenous peoples in solidarity against oppressive forces. Anti-Indigenous racism and anti-Black racism work collaboratively to support white supremacy and colonization by systematically violating African, Black, and Indigenous populations and communities. Structural violence in Canada and globally by design is anti-Black, anti-Indigenous racist. This is how colonization was born, fueled, and sustained up to today. White supremacy and colonization are strengthened and maintained by dividing the oppressed and by default making us discriminate against each other and ourselves. And that hurts me to my core when I say that line sometimes to ref refer to as, as lateral violence. Lateral violence, a term that I dislike, does not explain the psychological impacts of transgenerational and intergenerational trauma on African Black and Indigenous peoples due to extreme forms of continued violence for centuries. Internalized white supremacy and racism is the impact of experiencing overt and covert racist violence. And it, is, and it by design disparates our people in order for white supremacy to flourish through power, control, and manipulation in the Canadian state. Global Indigenous people's solidarity in the form of African and First Nations people is an act of resistance and challenges the inevitable list of white supremacy by oppressed peoples organizing and supporting each other and the dismantlement of systems that oppress our communities. It is critical to empower our communities and challenge colonization. There is more power in numbers and in our collective solidarity. We can make and demand changes in a unified heterogeneous voice, even with our differences. And that's why I think my tears come because um, we have experienced so much, yet we are still you know, doing this work together even and in our daily lives you know, uh, in solidarity. And we have to continue doing this because this is not inevitable. 
right? And we think mm-hmm. about, I think about our brothers and sisters living with HIV and our HIV in our communities. And I think, you know, it is not, it's not, it's not, there's, you know, there's a song called Dead Press and it says it's bigger than hip hop. Anybody might know it. It's bigger than HIV. You know what I mean? When we're talking about uh, the health violence in our communities and Indigenous and African communities having a voice collectively, collaboratively, and in solidarity is not only powerful, but it begins to dismantle also the notions that we will never get justice or we will always live under the colonization foot, literally. We're thinking about what happened, you know, um, in terms of George Floyd and um, DeAndre Campbell and Regis and all of the you know, so many other folks, even within the Canadian context. So mm. I, I really, I have this conversation with you and I'm emotional about it because our lives are emotional. Our lives, our life, life, this is about life and death for our communities. And um, it's just a pleasure to, to be able to have this conversation with you and to, you know, I, I can't wait till we actually see each other and we can eat together and <laughs> you know, dance together, et cetera. But it's, it's, yeah, I just wanted to, to say that I'm, I, it's a blessing from the ancestors to have this conversation. You know, our ancestors are jumping, their drums are going off. We're moving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're moving that we are, we're continuing to have a conversation that was had um, for many of us, you know, in different ways and places hundreds of years ago, and we continue to have it today. So I just thank you, sis, to, you know, being in solidarity and continuing to do this work um, together. Yeah. Oh, me Gwetch. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you talk about solidarity, yes. and I was just thinking about uh, folks that are going to be listening to, to the podcast, um, you know, one of my professors used to talk about how like as indigenous people, as indigenous people, you know, we need to survive colonialism, but we also need like our, our white settler brothers and sisters to decolonize and um, yeah, to, to join us in that. Right. Yeah. We're surviving every day. We're, we're trying to survive. Um, And, you know, when I think about like, folks that are not Indigenous and Black, so white and other racialized folks um, who are, who have unearned privileges based on, you know, a system that is really designed to um, eliminate um, Indigenous peoples of African um, ancestry and Indigenous peoples of this land, First Nations of this land. Um, The question is often, how do you, what do we do? What can we do? And as you said, we're we're trying to survive on a daily basis. We're just trying to get up and move through, um, you know, I can't tell you the, the acts of violence that happen to us on a daily basis, but you as in solidarity can do so much. You can talk to your communities, you can change your system, the system that does not listen to us in the same way. We're surviving it. You have that opportunity to make the difference. You know, how you talk, how you act. You know, when, I always say when the, when, the, when the black or indigenous child comes into a store, a simple example, comes into a store with five cents less and they're getting kicked out of the store in a very you know, disgusting way, what do you do, right? How do you deal with it? You might give the child the money, you might boycott the store, I'm, I'm a boycotter. You might you know, um, have some, it's little acts of resistance in terms of an anti-oppression or decolonizing way that speak to systems 
that oppressed could be individually and um, community wise that make a difference. So it's like people say, I don't know what to do. Well, like, you know what? There's so much information out there. Figure it out. The folks I know who are in solidarity, who are not from our communities, they, they, they're doing the work. They're figuring it out and they do the work and we are we work in solidarity we care for each other and i don't know if you can teach empathy that's a question we always talk about because empathy is there i learned mm -hmm. empathy as a child you know when somebody falls are you okay you need something you need a band-aid you need who you need to be rubbed with you know whatever bush my mom was doing at the time so have having empathy for our communities is not just about saying i have empathy it's about acting differently that's acting right. differently so yes, like reflections, the first part that's starting slow, yeah. but you know, decolonization work ultimately is about acting, right? Yeah. Um, being moved to act. And so like, I, I was just thinking about, um, you know, I, I, everybody talks about Indian residential schools, especially after this summer, right? Yeah with all the graves being found of of children which is uh Awful. but um like it it gets highlighted as the root of the issue in yeah. terms of like ongoing struggles of indigenous people like the trauma and yeah. so the biggest thing i think is for folks to understand that are living here regardless of you know your like the positionality you come from um like we all have a relationship to settler colonialism yeah. and we've been so conditioned to think about it in terms of like how indigenous folks have been traumatized. hundred percent. And so that is the problem saturated narrative yeah. that moves um, whiteness to innocence. And so what I mean by that is if we're thinking about this history in terms of only trauma and how it's only traumatized okay. indigenous folks, black folks. Um, that is like not seeing the whole picture. And so it's so important for folks to get curious about their relationship. And I, and I sound like a broken record. I keep going back to that, <laughs> but, but the other part <laughs> is, is that like, um, in regards to Indian residential schools, right? Right. Like asking ourselves, like, what are the ideas that allowed Indigenous children to be kidnapped yeah. from their families and communities? And then asking ourselves, like, are those ideas still present? And where do they live? Right. And they are because they continue to happen with, the, with, with our you know, Children's Aid Society. So there is definitely. Absolutely. I have to say, though, I have to say that the trauma piece, I think that there, there is um there is, a, for African Black folks, trauma, we were not even seen as trauma survivors. So mm. this is a, this is like, you know, we were not seen as trauma survivors, even though, you know, in terms of like mental health, um, you know, services and mental health admissions as a whole history of kind of um, incarcerating Black folks in terms of mental health institutions, etc. Um, but so, so I want, to, I do want to say that um, acknowledging our trauma is really critical and acknowledging that trauma yes. as violence from as an impact of violence. And that's, those are the pieces that I think are different. So it's not trauma just with no with no conversation, no but our trauma, exactly. Our trauma has to do with daily experiences of anti-Black racism and anti-African racism. And I say that because to me, sometimes that's missing. We are of African, you know, of African ancestry, which is a whole history of what, what that looks like. And we can unpack that another day. But even saying that we are traumatized 
is like an act of resistance because we're not considered human. We are, you know, we were people who mm. were not considered human beings. So I, I, need, I need to put that out there and to say that, 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 that our trauma comes from daily acts of violence and that anti-Black racism always has to be associated with violence. And that's the, that's that's the, the yeah. Yes. Like there's a lot to balance there, right? Like yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me when you say acknowledging our traumas and act of resistance, because yeah. it's like how emotions are political, like who's allowed to feel right. 100%. Which bodies are allowed to feel and, and yeah. which bodies aren't right? right. And we know ours were not allowed to. Yeah. And because um, we were we were not considered human beings, we were considered um, you know, and that history. And the, the thing is that even folks who come, you know, recently from the continent or from the diaspora to the Canadian context, all of our, all of our connections to African people, we've had thousands of years and centuries. And we talked about this, you know, and, and how we're going to bring this up later on or some way, because it's important of histories and her stories and their stories, mm-hmm. you know, that we have uh, traditions, we have, you know, the Kush empire, Ifa, we have, you know, Kemet, we have so many, so much that uh, was broken down. Um, you know, when you go to, you say, West Africa, and you go to certain places and spaces, um, and also in Kenya, Fort Jesus, because we also had East African um, enslavement, that's a whole nother story, but it's connected to overall uh, enslavement. But you go to what they call the castles, which I call the dungeons, and you see the church that was built upon the dungeons where African people were taken. This church represents that split of, of human and non-human. We were non-human taking to the bottom of those dungeons, taking in a particular way. And even if you did not experience uh, you know, slavery directly as an African person, like some people say, well, you know, I, I didn't experience it. I stayed in the continent. You experienced it you know, in terms of your brothers and sisters being left and the impact of, of, of what happened, um, you know, the, the, scrambling, the scramble of Africa, et cetera. So when you see people, you know, migrating to, um, to Canada, you know, like it's still, there's still histories of forced migration. Mm-hmm. You cannot break countries up. You can't break people up. You can't take resources out of countries, including people, and then say, you know, oh, well, you know, there's a oh, wire. Why, why, why is there conflict in, you know, the continent? Why is there conflict around the world? Colonization, settler colonization has impacted all of these pieces to clear lands. To clear lands to create white settler colonies meant that indigenous communities globally were interrupted and some more than the other. So I, 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 I just, I, call, I have to say the trauma piece because as an African person, we're not allowed, we're not supposed to feel, we're not supposed to cry, we're not supposed to have emotions. And we have to take that back to be able to survive. We have, our healing work is to actually understand that right. we're allowed to do that because it's impacted familial pieces. It impacts why people don't um, reveal their HIV status and why people in doing that can't get the support. My, my uncle who passed away from HIV um, back in the days, you know, was, it was he, everybody at that point was saying it was leukemia. Leukemia was something that we could give love to, but HIV wasn't. So, mm. and that has to do with the, you know, continued stigma of, um, of African peoples and, and, and what we do. And that comes from that whole colonial piece. So having our emotions, um, talking about trauma, and violence is really critical, but not leaving it to trauma. And like, we're all traumatized by this. No, we're not all traumatized by this. We have different impacts by this. But they're also, I just want to, I guess I'm just stressing again, because, you know, I'm an African storyteller, so it's going to go around and around. Um, the importance of, of owning the fact that we 
are traumatized people because of the type of violence we have experienced. Yeah. And, and so I'm thinking about like, that is so important. And then also how, oh, how do I say this? I, I can't see. Text. Like, sorry, not, not wanting to be viewed um, as strictly traumatized people through a white gaze. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. hundred percent. Man. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, and then, I mean, there's a whole, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole piece, which I, and I think any type of our, you know, uh, there's this whole thing about how you, how white folks take care of you or, you know, that kind of notion of taking care in the system that will take care of of the folks who are sick or whatever. I mean, that's, that's a a colonial notion. I'm not talking about that. I I think that I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent that, Trauma has been used in a very problematic way, and they focus on even our statistics of um, what what's happening wrong in our communities, what's bad in our communities, instead of what uh, you know what what the the context is. And I think that's why we're talking about the context here. Yeah, um, like when we yeah. are bringing ourselves forward with our experiences, our emotions, our wholeness, right? Right. Um, I guess the because of settler colonialism the limitations that comes um, when we are being spoken about by others. Particularly mm-hmm. when you speak about it, but there's no actions. Like you're, you're saying, oh, black people, oh gosh, black people live with yes. HIV and, and Indian people live with HIV. They, they struggle so much. Yo, 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 where's the resources? Where's the funding? Right. You know, where's, where's the, the, the actual admitting of the fact that, you know, this colonial states that we live in have created this and continue to create that. And they also, I also want to say that the, you know, wanting to not talk, there's also about like not wanting, like, what are you talking about? 1860, like, we're not, why, who cares? The Indian Act was so long ago. Some people think that the Indian Act does not exist, number one. And some people say, well, slavery was a long time ago. So who cares? So there's also those notions. So I think the, again, it's like, it's like, we, you know, we're trying to, I don't know, um, have conversations that interrupt uh, the interrupt the, the, the trauma only story and also the story of of why we are, you know, why HIV prevalence happens in digital black communities without giving the, the context of, you know, continued violence health violence and other other factors. At, like, absolutely. Because even as we're talking, Roberta, it's like, yeah. you know, if you and I were just like, always being mindful of who's listening, how, how are they going to take it? How could it be misinterpreted? You know? <laughs> oh, my, like, like, I, I can tell you, like, I yeah. actually, the HIV sector, and we say sector, I left and came back. I keep on leaving and coming back to the sector because I come from decolonizing perspective and the sector wanted something different. Now we're seeing something different. This is a change. You know, I can tell you the folks in in our communities who have been fighting for um, these types of conversations, some of them are here, I would say, you know, um, some of them are here and some of them are not because it's, it's been such a violent experience to actually have a real conversation about um, you know HIV and colonization. I mean, there is to me 
it's and you know we talk about prevalence in Canada I have to, as an African person I have to talk about you know HIV also within you know global the global world um, uh, in terms of African people you know in the continent the diaspora and our, our rates and our rates are not they, they can't be talked about without talking about colonization right. right so it's a transnational connection that we're talking about you know we're talking about um, the whole notion that you know uh, HIV is a black disease. I mean, and you, you see COVID-19, I, I, it's coming up to be something similar with the, the recent ban, you know, the ban on 10 African countries of, of the Omicron variant, mm-hmm. which probably didn't come from the continent at all. There's like, you know, conversations about it coming from other places in Europe, but that same anti-Black racist colonized notion, right, creates diseases that have African people's names on it. Ebola right. is another one, right? Mm-hmm. So, this dismantling that we're doing here is actually um, so critical in terms of how do you create interventions? How do you, and I say interventions as quote unquote, that I, don't, I don't love that language, but how do we create programs that support our communities, right? When folks who actually work in the sector believe that there is something um, that about us, you know, something genetically about us, even there's some conversations about that, that actually um, are pre predisposed us to HIV. And, and to higher rates of prevalence. So this whole, you know, con- you know what I mean? This context, this is where we're coming from also that we're trying right. to dismantle right now. Don't let me get, don't let me get, don't let me get and, up And we're going to talk about all that <laughs> in other podcasts. Yes, yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> As we close, I'd like to send special thanks to those who have continued to support this project behind the scenes and to the Ontario AIDS Network who invited me your host, Kandwani Mwase, to join and lend a small hand to this effort. I thank you immensely. To those of you who are listening and who will not only stand in solidarity, but do the work that is necessary, I say, welcome to the conversation. Welcome to the work. <laughs>